You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Seduction, betrayal and scandal. Three words that paint quite the picture. While they may seem like the tagline to a new Hollywood blockbuster, these words characterize many of the intricately thought out and expertly executed intelligence operations throughout history. This week's guest is Henry Schlesinger, author of the book Honey Trapped, Sex, Betrayal, and Weaponized Love. Honey traps have been frequently misconstrued by Hollywood. The portrayal of spies like Matahari in popular culture have shaped our understanding of the femme fatale figure. But there is so much more to learn. This week, we dive deeper into the long history of using sex and love as a weapon in the shadowy world of espionage. My name is Erin. Going forward, I'll be working with Andrew on SpyCast. I've seen just how much work goes into the podcast in these past few weeks, so I would greatly appreciate it if you could spend a moment of your time giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I promise it will not go unnoticed. So let's uh, let's get going then uh, and start talking about your book. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your book, Honey Trapped, Sex, Betrayal, and Weaponized Love. Where did it come from? What did you do and how did you do it? So let's start off with where did it come from? Where did you get this idea from? Okay, um, I've written several books and co-authored several books on espionage. And honey traps keep popping up in espionage history um, through the long, through its very long history, I might add. And it seemed that when you mentioned them in conversation with people, even people that were knowledgeable in espionage, there seemed to be a misunderstanding of them. 
Um, they had they either had one fixed idea of what a honey trap is, um, say somebody jumping out of a closet to catch you and to catch an agent or someone in bed with um, a foreign a, a foreign intelligence officer in a compromising position, or um, the idea that there were these beautiful women, these fashion model like women roaming streets and hotels looking for suspecting marks. And um, while both may be true to a certain extent, it doesn't cover the full range of what this kind of intelligence operation entails. There is also the aspect of sex involved with it, which um, is obscuring. People will read about them and then they'll stop at the sex part because that's the titillating part. Or journalists will stop at the sex part they don't understand or, you know, readers aren't interested in the full scope of these kinds of operations. So I wanted to cast a new light on it, um, talk about the history and talk about how they work and talk about how effective they are. And we are going to discuss uh, some of the narrative arc of the book in the, co in the course of our conversation. But I just wanted to also pick up on, so a honey trap, we're thinking about, you know, it's a... As what it sounds like, it's like something that's there to lure someone in. Uh, so that's the general idea. But it's not just women, you know, just to get that out there at the beginning. It's not just women that have been a honey trap. It's also men and it's not just been for male and female. It's also been for male and male and female and female. That's correct? Sure. It's the full range of sexuality um, that offers the... Uh, that either offers sex or the promise of sex or um, something having to do with sex in order to, um, as leverage. Mm -hmm. this, this one's quite interesting to me and we're going to discuss motivations a little bit, but thinking about different motivations for espionage and it seems to me that this one especially touches on the ego part, right? Because, you know, depending on your uh, own preference, who isn't flattered or has a has a secret smile inside when an outrageously attractive uh, person uh, comes and tr acts like they want to be your friend. I mean, it's it's really playing on so much psychology and insecurity and so many other things on that front as well, right? Sure, but they're not always outrageously attractive. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just I'm just dramatizing, right. but yeah. If an outrageously attractive person suddenly found me the most interesting, you know, person in the world, I would be suspicious. Um, what they are usually is people that fit into the environment. I mean, they're not you know bad looking, but they're not you know they're not fashion models or they're not centerfolds or anything like that. They're just people that fit into the environment. Um, in the case of the Romeo spies used by East Germany. Um, they were just average-looking, really nice guys. That was important, that they were really nice guys. And um, usually, male or female, when they approach someone, they, they've, they already know a lot about them. There's already been a dossier created about them, or created for them to study up on the target. And let's let's move on to discuss uh, some of the other examples. So we've got the, you know, you mentioned that even people that look at intelligence and espionage misunderstand this. So 
we've got the the classic idea of a honey trap that we see all the time in movies and so forth. But give us an example of the range because you were saying it's much broader than that. Sure. Um, there are lots of variations. And what variation is used depends on the type of operation. And they can use, say, parts or they, or they can combine variations. So someone can be um, in bed and caught in a compromising position. And, some, and the intelligence officers jump out of the closet with a camera and take pictures. Um, so now they have leverage over that person. What do they do with the photos? Do they release them to the press to embarrass the person and cause them to lose their job? Or do they use them as blackmail material? That would be the simplest kind of variation that you can have. Often, it once, or in, in one particular case, the John Vassell case in England, um, he claimed that he had there were compromising pictures taken of him. Um, later on, he continued to spy once back in England and was well paid for it. So they went from a stick to a carrot, and that would be another variation. Um, today, they can release um, videos that were made covertly onto the Internet to embarrass the person, and those are much more graphic. Mm-hmm. And it's also quite interesting because it's not, you know, when we speak about this stuff, uh, so there's the sex part, but it's not just about physicality, right? It's not just about that kind of instinct. It's also about about love. It's about the mind. It's about human connection. <laughs> uh, there's so many other things. So there's, so there's so much that's going on there. So it's not... I think it's also just seen as it's just like a, a physical transactional thing, but sometimes it can be, it can be more than that. It can be more cerebral. Sure, um, it can be more emotional too. Look at the um, so-called Romeo spies that East Berlin, um, East Germany deployed during the Cold War. Uh, Marcus Wolf, the Stasi officer, recognized a demographic anomaly in Germany following World War II. Um, There was a shortage of men, which meant a shortage of available husbands. And women, because of that same shortage of men, women were going into careers formerly held by men, including intelligence services, you know, office work. So um, he, he deployed these Romeo spies, and they were pretty, you know, pretty average looking guys, but they were really nice guys. Um, They were really caring. They knew, you know, um, they seem to be interested in a long-term relationship. Um, some of these relationships lasted years um, that they engaged in. They would often come in under false flags, saying they were from another country. They were, um, well, I'm not really um, a journalist. I'm an intelligence officer, but I'm an intelligence officer from a friendly country. And could you provide me this material? Some of these relationships lasted years. Um, in one instance, um, a woman had misgivings about spying, even for a friendly country, and confessed to a priest um, that was a Stasi agent. They had, um, they had, had a, 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 or a Stasi officer. They had him impersonate a priest to hear her confession. And predictably, he said, spying's not the best thing in the world, but it's not the worst either. And kind of gave her permission to keep spying. Um, these relationships went on for years, some of them. They were serious, you know, romantic relationships. It's quite interesting because it's hacking into 
certain human vulnerabilities and so forth, isn't it? It's using them to achieve a, a, an objective that the person that you're inter- interacting with doesn't know up front. Sure, but um, isn't, isn't that how a lot of spying, a lot of human intelligence is gained? Exactly. <laughs> I just think it's quite interesting when you, when you look at it through the lens of uh, sex and love. Um, well, the thing about espionage is that it, um, it encompasses the best in human beings and the worst and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also quite interesting. I used to live not too far away from Bonn and that, of course, was the, the capital of West Germany uh, for, you know, when West Germany was still the name of the country. And Bonn, uh, I remember there was a joke. It was like uh, Bonn was nicknamed the, the National Cemetery, you know, the National c- because it was just such a sleepy kind of nondescript town where not a lot happened. So... So you had that demographic anomaly you spoke of, but it also wasn't a particularly great place to be a young single woman. No, it wasn't. Um, and um, Marcus Wolf was very much aware of this. Um, as he famously said, I was running an intelligence operation, not um, a Lonely Hearts Club. Um, he did admit to things getting out of hand um, on occasion. And and just to, let's discuss the motivations a little bit because you outline that in your book. So it can be control, it can be to exploit, it can be to target, and it can be to discredit. So we've spoke a lot about about the discrediting. You know, this person says that they're a morally upright member of society, but actually here's this hidden. Uh, part of their personality that they're trying to hide from everybody so you discredit them in, in the eyes of the public or some kind of constituency but tell us a little bit more about the other ones control, exploit and target well you can begin blackmailing someone if um, taking pictures or um, re- releasing some other evidence of an untoward um, relationship and it depends whether how much they want to hang on to their reputations and careers Again, it's the stick rather than a carrot, but you can combine that. Um, if you discre- you can also immediately discredit someone if they represent an obstacle, um, if they're you know if they're particularly um, worrisome or bothersome. Um, you can just eliminate them from the you know operation. It's you know without you know without going through the bother of murdering them. Um, you know, by discrediting them, by releasing evidence of um, hypocrisy, a moral hypocrisy, um, re- removes them from the picture many times. I don't know if it's the same. I'm sure it's relatively similar here in the States, but uh, in, a, in a former life, uh, I had to go through security vetting. Uh, I was in an aerial intelligence um, unit in the Royal Air Force <laughs> Uh, in a lot of those interviews, the the basic takeaway was, and I'm being I'm simplifying a little bit, but but it was, you could have done pretty much anything as long as you're happy to tell us about it and you're happy for the world to know about it. But it's if there's something that you're trying to hide, that's where it becomes a problem. That's interesting. I was unaware of that, um, but I can see it. You know, one of the interesting things to me was that in 1980. Um, Bobby Ray Inman at the NSA um, refused to fire um, a gay man or revoked his security clearance. He did it under the condition that the gay man came out to his family and close friends 
and came in for added interviews every year. But at one point um, before that, um, just being gay was enough to revoke your security clearance. And revealing that would, you know, um, would have um, ended a career. And that, that would have been one of the most um, effective honey traps. There was one case in England, um, Jeremy Wolfenden. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Uh, yeah, I've heard, I've came across him before. Okay. A lot he of was, these people I've came across from your book. Right. He was <laughs> um, known as the cleverest boy in England. And by all accounts, he was brilliant. And like, he was a gay man. Um, working in Moscow, caught in a honey trap, immediately reported it to his superiors, and they chose to um, keep him in place. And that has happened many times. Um, these people that do that, um, despite embarrassment, um, are heroes, I believe. Wolfenden, I believe, was a kind of hero. Um, there was a, a, a columnist, a well-known columnist in Washington, who was um, caught in a honey trap and immediately reported it, was hustled out of um, Moscow, and the KGB kept at him. Um, they sent photos to his political enemies, all of which chose not to exploit the photos. Um, it was a Wolfenden situation. And that takes great courage. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. It's quite interesting that it can play out in a variety of different ways, right? It's not just as simple as you get caught doing something and then all of a sudden you're an asset. It can it can cash out in different types of ways, right? And the Wolfenden example is a good one, so you can keep them in place. Sure. Um, Lone Tree, um, Clayton Lone Tree was a U.S. Marine in the embassy. He um, was caught in a honey trap. He refused to believe that it was a honey trap even up to the point of his trial. Soviet intelligence services mimicked a natural relationship so well that he, you know, he broke down crying when he finally realized what had happened. And, and he was a, a Native American Marine Guard, and this is during the 1980s, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. All of intelligence, or a great deal of human intelligence, mimics naturalness, everyday life. Um, going to dead drops and signal sites and that kind of thing. Honey traps do the same thing, but it's much more complicated because you're dealing with human beings, you know, intimate, you know, intimate interactions between human beings. And this woman managed to convince him that it was a natural relationship. Um, she had met him on the subway platform in Moscow. Um, a couple of times they chatted and things progressed very, very naturally. Um, it was, you know, it, it, it was a brilliant operation. I say that, you know, um, with grudging respect. 
I think it's also the, the, the psychology there, just touching on the human being component of it. The psychology there is also very interesting. So I'm thinking of a movie like um, Donnie Brasco, where they're just, at, you know, so Johnny Depp's an undercover FBI officer. Um, he basically infiltrates the mob. And then when they, when they get confronted, when they get arrested and they get told that Johnny Depp's character is actually an undercover uh, FBI agent, they just refuse to believe it, even although all of the evidence is to the contrary. And then in the end, when they grudgingly accept that he is a undercover officer, they say, well, you know, tell him we knew he was only doing his job. So the, 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 the psychology is quite interesting as well. And that can, it seems to me that that can also play out in a number of different ways. Sure. You don't want to believe that you've been had. You don't want to believe that you've been tricked, um, particularly over a long period of time. Look at um, Mercada, Ramon Mercada, um, Trotsky's assassin. Um, he was a Romeo spy who um, romanced a woman who had access. She, he used her as an access agent to Trotsky. And that was a long-term relationship. He did have help early on when the woman, Agalov, um, was in Paris. They arranged, Soviet intelligence services arranged for her to be accompanied by another woman who would help with the relationship, the initial seduction. Um, saying, wow, that guy's really handsome. He seems like a good guy. Why don't you start a relationship with him? Um, and that's the way the relationship ended. They put um, another woman next to Agalov to, you know, cheer on the relationship, the budding relationship. I thought that was interesting. Mm. And uh, what we can discuss that. Uh, we can go on to discuss that a little bit more. I think that's a fascinating example. So let's let's like start digging into the the chronology of this. So let, let's start way back when and then work our way up to the present day. So you give some quite interesting examples in the book, Henry, of the Bible, the um, Mahabharata, where the Bhagavad Gita comes from. So tell us a little bit more about some of the, those examples. I think one that many people have heard of is the story of Samson and Delilah. So just recount for our listeners what you call the the biblical Bond girl that was Delilah. Um, sure. Samson was was seen as a threat, and they wanted to eliminate the threat. And they um, paid Delilah to um, find his weakness. And that's a very early example. Notably, Delilah is one of the few women in the story who is um, named other than Samson's mother. So she has an actual name. She's a Bond girl. Um, the Epic of Gilgamesh is the same way. They want to tame um, Enkidu, who's a wild man on the steps, and they send a uh, woman out to tame him with sex and then lure him by degrees back to the city. Ancient Sanskrit texts um, you know, don't give examples but they lay out a roadmap of how to, you know, the, the ty different types of honey traps involved. Um, interestingly, they um, name actresses and singers as um, the prime honey traps as, or, or suitable. I, th I always thought that was interesting. But that's, it, it, they appear in every culture that has intelligence or has, or has an intelligence service or a function. On, on, on that note, tell us a little bit more about uh, Xi Xi uh, and ancient China. 
Um, she was um, recruited by a defeated king, um, the most beautiful woman in his kingdom. And what's interesting about her is that she's become this, this mythic figure. But in the myth, she is also trained in um, dance and song and social graces and that kind of thing. And she's given to the, um, the victorious king as, um, as tribute. And he becomes obsessed with her to the point of neglecting the rule of his kingdom. And he, he neglects the rule of his kingdom and commits huge resources to building things to please her. Palaces and um, canals and things like that. Um, it, it creates unrest in his kingdom and creates a vulnerability where the once defeated king can now defeat him. Um, she brought down a kingdom. Wow. And and just looking at this, you know, in, in your book, this thread that runs through your book, I mean, it just seems, it seems so self-evident that this is just embedded in human history, even before there's formalized professional intelligence agencies. It's just a, the, the, there's just so much leverage. There's so much things that can be done with human beings. And I think that that example that you just gave there, uh, Xi Xi, you know, you mentioned earlier about appearing to fit in and just like you wouldn't send out a, a, a case officer, just, you know, a blunt instrument, go in there and just walk up to someone and ask if they want to, you know, work on behalf of your government. There's a, there's like a, a whole series of, uh, there's an art to it, right? There's ar artifice, there's, you know, mannerisms, there's uh, various things that, that go into making all of this. It's more complicated than it, than it seems on the surface, which just appears like a, you know, a mouse trap. Here's like a piece of cheese, they walk in, it slams on them. There's, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work on the back end, right? There's a lot of preparation usually in these types of operations. I think it's also quite interesting in your book, just thinking about the professionals that do this versus the people that are brought into it, like Matahari. But we can go on to discuss that. I think another really great example that you have in the book is the Flying Squadron. So we're talking about monarch, the monarchies and courts of That's Europe. That's Catherine in the, II, I believe, yes. Yeah, the early modern period. Tell us a little bit more about them. They're they're really really interesting, uh, and I'm I'm pretty sure most people haven't heard of them. Um, the Flying Squadron is, I believe, from my reading, is mostly myth. Um, Catherine was a dementia, um, and it was said of her that she had a group of women who she deployed throughout Europe to sleep with powerful men to gain secrets. That she used sex or that she used honey traps is un, unrefutable. That it was so organized to have, you know, women that just did this, I think, is a little strange credulity. But I, um, squadron in this case doesn't refer to um, airplanes. It's not an aeronautical term. It's a, a, a dancing term. And on the, on the topic But again, of, she was a Dimitri, so, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was a, they had a bit of a flair for this uh, type of dramatization. So talk, talking about uh, mythology, let's pivot onto the Southern Bells. That's another quite interesting example. Right. The Southern Bells, um, again, that's myth, largely myth. Um, historians have gone back to look at the intelligence they gathered. And um, 
Southerners had an advantage in the, um, because, you know, it was easier for a Southerner to operate in Washington than it was for a Northerner to operate in Richmond. The Southern bells were said to be charming and able to wheedle secrets out of Northern officers, you know, Union officers and enlisted men alike. With, the, with their mannerisms and their hospitality, it was a very, you know, um, likely myth or a very, or a very attractive myth. Um, in reality, where the Southerners really shined, where the Confederacy really shined, was with their scouts, people who knew the landscape and were able to go out and spy on troop movements, that kind of thing. Um, but the Southern Bell myth, you know, indoors, you know, and it's fine. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a very colorful myth and it's a lot of things go with it. Um, hiding wanted men under their big crinoline dresses and things like that. But um, it, it's largely mythology and um, self-promotion on the part of many of them. In your book, you discuss that, you know, when you look at the evidence, it actually appears that the North were probably more successful at this stuff than the Southern Bells. Um, well, they both used it. I'm not sure how effective the Northerners were. They um, apparently used it in um, brothels. You know, the um, Northerners, um, they recruited um, women who worked in brothels to, to report on them, Southern, Southern officers. Even with some of the examples that we've spoken about so far, it's really, really interesting. You know, if you just mention these names, like Samson and Delilah, the Flying Squadron of the French Court, the Southern Bells. I mean, those are all very evocative uh, images that come to your mind. And this is one of the problems that... And don't forget you, Matahari. And, but that, that's what I was teeing up for. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're on to me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, and, and then that brings us up to the mother of all myths, uh, Matahari, which is just really, really fascinating. Uh, a self-creation that's amplified by popular culture ever since it happened. Uh, and this is with us until the present day where... Someone gets uncovered and the press say that they're the ex-Matahari or the Matahari of X. So let, let's dig into Matahari's story a little bit more, um, which I find quite interesting. We don't have time to go into why McLeod is part of her name. Uh, whenever I think of that, uh, being a Scot, I always think of Highlander, you know, I'm Connor McLeod of the clan McLeod. I don't, I don't think it's really going to work for Matahari, but uh, let's, go, <laughs> let's go on to discuss Matahari. So just let's just clarify this for our listeners because we feature on the Spy Museum. Who was she and why is she known as the, like, the femme fatale figure? Well, you have to understand first, femme fatales have an appeal that's equal. Um, women find them as fascinating as men for some reason. The idea of this woman who can manipulate a man with a look or a gesture or, you know, the promise of sex. They're, in, you know, they're usually well-costumed or well-dressed. So there's a real appeal at the basis of um, femme fatales. Uh, Marta Harley was in show business. One of her early costumes I'd note, I noted in the book, which I find fascinating, was designed by Erte, the Art Deco master, um, who had decades of, you know, successes in designing Art Deco objects and clothing and that kind of thing. She was a sad figure. Um, she was a young woman who married badly, um, 
was probably um, um, infected with syphilis early on in her marriage. Um, tried, escaped once to Paris and found herself in um, a very low rent or very low, low rent brothel where she had to service between 10 and 15 minute shift. Um, went back, managed to scrape together some money and returned to Paris um, and made a big success through a series of sexual conquests and other things. Um, was found by an agent and promoted as this exotic dancer. Um, how much people believed that she was an exotic dancer at the time is unknown. Her name is Eye of the Morning, I believe. Mata Hari translates to Eye of the Morning. How much people believe that is unknown. What's um, pretty rele uh, relevant is that she did perform semi-nude in these dances. So it was a way to take in a semi-nude show and pretend that it was cultural. And she became famous and well-known and had a series of, you know, lovers um, who lavished her with gifts. Um, at the end of her career, she turned to espionage and she wasn't very good at it. She was seen as expendable and she was expended. Um, arrested by the French, put on trial. Because she was so well-known, she was a good publicity device. And there were a lot of photos of her taken in costume, um, which, you know, served to titillate the public and continues to do so. And she was executed. And she, just, just for our listeners, clarify, who was it that she was spying for and who was she spying against? And yeah, what, what kind of web was she caught up in? Um, she, in reality, she took money to spy for both the French and the Germans. Um, and she was accused by the French of spying for the Germans, and that was the web that she was caught up in. Um, her German lover um, transmitted a code that he knew or should have known had already been broken that identified her, and that's when she was arrested. It's quite interesting, you know, the, yeah, just looking at her story, it's, it's quite it's quite tragic, isn't it? And I think, you know, I hear because we've got the exhibit here, we get a lot of feedback about it on Matahari. And I think one of the things that's quite interesting, just, you know, looking back as a historian, is like at, in that era, the, this orientalization or exotic uh, associations with the Eastern world, they were pretty standard in Western cultures. And I think Matahari was just playing into that. It's not that she was, uh, you know, responsible for doing this off, off of the bat. This is something that was going on at that time. Sure. She was Dutch. The Orientalism was a fabrication. It made her seem more exotic. In reality, she's a tragic figure. She lost custody of her children. Well, one child died when he was treated for syphilis as a toddler and given an overdose of mercury, which was the treatment by the base doctor. Um, she lost custody of her daughter because of the risque photos that were available at the time, and they were used in the court case against her. When they arrested her, they found a mysterious ointment, which they believed was used for um, secret writing, you know, invisible ink. Um, in reality, the ointment was a common medication to um, relieve the pain of um, syphilitic legions. She was a tragic figure for most of her life. She was promoted... Um, 
by, you know, show business people, earned a lot of money for them and herself, and um, just, you know, went into decline after her show business career was over. And I think another interesting part of this is, you know, people always look back at this with modern sensibilities. And at that time, as a woman, it was very difficult to to manufacture yourself as, as something, you know, a captain of industry, a, an actor, a, a lawyer, a doctor. So there's very little scope to do this type of stuff. But Matahari sees an opportunity to create this image of herself and and she, she 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 works within those spaces that she can given the constraints of that particular time. Um that's not altogether true. She was promoted by a wily impresario. I mean he saw potential in her and um you know put her on stage and touring and all of that. Um so you know her you know she did manufacture some of her persona prior to entering that world but um it it, it was heavily promoted and heavily exploited and and tell us a little bit more about the so just after Matahari the actual historical figure of Matahari gets executed and then in nineteen thirty we have the book Matahari Curtisan and Spy by Major Thomas Coulson, a British intelligence <laughs> officer, and then and then you also have, I think it's nineteen thirty one or nineteen thirty. You have the Greta Garbo Matahari movie. So, how important are both of them in like solidifying this myth that she goes on to become? Enormously important. Um, they did Coulson and Garbo did for Matahari um, what the French press did in promoting her espionage. You know, it was this myth of the femme fatale that, um, you know, it, it it's enduring. So it, it really gave new life to, you know, to the myth. And now it, it, it's almost impossible to, to distinguish the real Marta Hari from Garbo. That brings me on to the next person I wanted to ask you uh, about Bistroliotov. Um, we here at the museum we also have an exhibit on him and there, there's just some absolutely fantastic photographs of him as all different adopting all different types of personas a Dutch artist a you know, European count an English gentleman and every single one of them he just looks so convincing I often say to guests that he's he was like uh, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, and Daniel Day Lewis all rolled into one. He was just uh, he really owned each of the roles that he inhabited. So, just tell us a little bit more about Bistroliotov and, and seduction. He was an interesting character. Um, he would actually go to locations within the country where he had a where he was supposedly from for his cover and take pictures of himself in different outfits to establish his cover. Um and I, I totally agree that he was like a Daniel Day Lewis, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep rolled into one. One of his um best operations, or the one that I, you know, that sticks with me, was he recruited a man, Oldham, um, who worked in the code office in London. And um the operation was going to going to plan. And then he seduced Oldham's wife. So he had a spy spying on his spy. 
I thought that was um, that was a little over the over the top, but it was um, totally in character for him. Another notable operation was seducing um, a woman in Germany um, who was a true believer in the Nazi cause. She was also disfigured from a fire, and he was a very handsome guy. So, how do you approach her? She, you know, assuming that she had some self-awareness, she would question why this really handsome guy was pursuing her for a romantic relationship. Um, well, he posed as a political naive, um, expressed modest interest in the Nazi um, philosophy, and she became his tutor um, in poli- uh, his political tutor, tutor, and then progressed from there to a shared ideology and then a romantic relationship. And the stepped process was inspired. The level of forethought that would have to go into that. I, done, I, I took some acting classes at the HB studio in the West Village. And uh, the, these are the types of things that we would talk about. But the timeline for Bistroliotov was much longer. and, and sure, the, it was months. Yeah, it was just, it's just incredible, I think, just the level of thought that goes into this, like slowly building it up and, and making your way into their affections and then, and then taking it from there. It's just incredible. Let me ask a question. Is it any, any more detailed than the level of thought that goes into planting a clandestine listening device or the, or the normal recruitment of an agent? I think I, I hear what you're saying. I think that one of the points you make in the book is that this is quite often this is an intelligence operation. So intelligence operations, you know, there's a lot of forethought that goes into them. I feel like Bistroliotov just takes it to a whole new level. Even the clothes and everything that he wears, it looks like the best, uh, you know. Yeah, he seems to just go above and beyond. But he's also quite a tragic figure in the end, doesn't he? Yes, he was, um, he, would, he was caught up in the um, purges, um, sent to a gulag, remarkably survived the gulag, got out, made his living, I believe, as an artist and a translator. He did write his memoirs, um, and a much redacted um, version of them did, did come out, I believe, in Russia. Really, really fascinating. And another one that we have here at the museum is the Trotsky assassination. So tell us a little bit more about uh, Ramon Mercador and Sylvia uh, Agalov. Um, Sylvia Agalov was um, a social worker in New York. Um, Her sister had worked for Trotsky. She had known Trotsky. They had targeted her because she was uninvolved with anyone. She was relatively plain looking. They chose Mercada and his mother because they were true believers in the Soviet cause. They launched him against her in Paris. They arranged for her to go to Paris with a girlfriend for a a Soviet thing or a a, a socialist um, conference, but, you know, romantic city at the time. Uh, Mercada posed as the playboy 'er ne'er-do-well of a Belgian I believe, European, um, rich European family. They hit it off, of course, Agalov and uh, Mercada. They had several, you know, encounters or, you know, the relationship, in, you know, went from Paris back to New York. 
and then to Mexico. And eventually Mercator wheedled his way into Trotsky's compound, um, which had been reinforced following an unsuccessful um, and spectacular assassination attempt involving machine guns and that kind of thing. That was it. You know, once he was in with Trotsky's, um, or once he was trusted by Trotsky's guard and the people in the compound and Trotsky himself, he had access. And, um, and that was the end of the story for Trotsky. And, and here at the museum, we have the ice axe that was used to kill Leon Trotsky. That's a really interesting story. But another... Yeah, another it's, yeah sorry. It's often mistaken for an ice pick, a cocktail lounge kind of ice pick. But in fact, it was an axe, um, an alpinist axe, a mountain climbing axe that they had stolen from the motel owner's son with it. They were using as a safe house and cut the handle down to make, to make it easier to conceal. And this was also a, a, a long game that was being played, right, by by uh, Mercador and, and the, the, the Russians? Sure, it was a very long game. Uh, months, you know, and very well planned and executed up until the point where they substituted the ice axe for a metal bar. Um, it didn't immediately kill Trotsky. The idea was to kill Trotsky silently. And um, for Mercator to walk out of the compound nonchalantly. Um, what had happened is once Trotsky was struck, um, it didn't kill him instantly. He cried out and the you know, compound was on lockdown and they were able to capture him. He served out his full term in jail. And Mexico and then went to the Soviet Union. Right. I, th- I, th- I think uh, one that any listeners from the DMV might think quite interesting is the capital couples, uh, the swingers. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about them? Um, the coachers, um, they, were, they were Czech intelligence officers posing as refugees um, who hated communism. And they had a reputation or they either they were truly into it or they um, posed as it, you know, or they adopted the lifestyle of swingers during the 70s. Um, And they were involved in a group called Capital Couples in Washington where that met in private homes and motel rooms or hotel rooms that were swingers. And they were said to um, frequent a place in New York called Plato's Retreat and some other clubs. How much that was cover and how much that was personal preference or a combination of either one is um, up for debate. Those clubs are very closed systems, very closed um, communities or subcultures. So a new person entering it uh, would be under, you know, would be looked at closely. Um, So I would assume that... um, that was a place where they could avoid any kind of surveillance or suspicion, where those were places where they could avoid, you know, surveillance. It's hard to imagine the FBI um, infiltrating Plato's retreat. Yeah, uh, yeah it would be quite, quite the feat. Um, I mean, I think uh, another thing that I find quite interesting, you know, just going through your book is thinking about. Like so, we've got professional intelligence agencies, and then we've got the the earlier period. But you know, you, you outline in the book that this is not just something that you know 
societies like uh, communist societies or authoritarian societies would use your point as that pretty much all uh, intelligence agencies have used that whether they choose to admit it or not can you just give us a couple of non uh, a couple of examples from the uh, American or Anglo-American world sure um, during World War II um, America and England ran um, a joint honey trap operation with Betty Pack um, she was a Washington debutante um, once married to a British a British diplomat, and um, she, you know, she seduced several um, high-ranking diplomats in Washington during World War II, um, and she was very upfront about it. She says, my efforts saved thousands of lives or hundreds of lives. I don't regret it at all. Most countries are very squeamish about admitting that they use them, uh, but they all do. In one operation, she... Um, she disrobed. She took off all of her clothing except high heels and a pearl necklace in case the security guard came in. It was a French embassy, the Vichy French embassy, I believe, consulate. And um, if the security guard intruded, um, she could, you know, her and her target could claim that, you know, they were just involved in a romantic tryst. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. That's like just reading your book, I was just thinking about the way that all of this stuff all intersects with the social, just so many parts of the history of human beings, but, you know, changing uh, gender relations, social relations. uh, There's just so much nuance to all of this stuff other than what people just think of when they think, oh yeah, it's just some really hot, you know, Eastern European girl like hitting on someone and then they get secrets there's just so many different hues and and colors and and layers of nuance going on here it's really really fascinating sure it's an intelligence operation it's um it's complicated yeah Yeah. i mean even even thinking about like i was just thinking being in, in norway or being in scandinavia i remember someone saying to me that their men don't approach women and try to chat them up or talk to them there women come over and will like cheers your glass and say skull if they want to speak to you a little bit more so even even things like that like the cultural conventions if you just send someone in there yeah just go and chat to a bunch of girls then it's going to be like well that's not really working in this cultural context there's there's other things going on so it's just really really fascinating sure spies aren't james bond Normal case officers, you know, spy runners aren't James Bond. Um, They tend to blend into the environment. Um, That's also true for honey trap operations. They tend to blend into the environment. They're not out of place. If you look at um, Maria Butina, um, she's a fascinating character. The photos taken of her at, at political events, her wardrobe is perfect. Um, her wardrobe is um, upper middle class shopping mall dresses and you know outfits and that kind of thing. She went to gun shows. She wore cowboy hats and boots. Um, she completely blended in. If you didn't know who she was, you wouldn't be able to. You wouldn't be able to pick her out of a crowd. Just talking about that. This also intersects with technology, right? You mentioned this in the book. Uh, the the role that cameras had. All of a sudden, you could 
you could capture someone in a, a particular type of situation or even bringing it up to the present day, thinking about cyberspace and, and Robin Sage and Mia Ash and so forth. Like walk it up to the present day, you know, the honey traps are not just a Cold War uh, thing. They're, they're also happening around us just now. So just tell us about how honey traps and, and weaponized love have, have came up to the, the digital era. Okay, well, first, I think it's important to, going back to espionage philosophy or espionage history, if something works, it continues to be in use. Conversely, if um, new technology works, it will be adopted into espionage. So um, the digital age has been adopted into that. Cyber operations have been adopted into honey traps. Um, you can create um, a false persona. You know, actual sex isn't necessary anymore in the digital age. Um, just the possibility of sex is enough. In, in one operation, one intelligence operation, they use social media to lure in um, military personnel in the Middle East. And, and the woman would say, or the, the notional woman, the fictional woman would say, I want to send you some pictures, some risque pictures. Um, can you download this app? And the app was on the app store. Um, these guys would download it and um, it wouldn't completely download or it said it wouldn't download and they gave up. Um, in fact, the app did download and took control of their phone. Um, so they had their GPS, they had their text message, they had their emails. Um, they had every function of the phone. They could turn on the camera, they could turn on the microphone. It was a brilliant, you know, it was a brilliant maneuver. After they downloaded the app, of course, that they didn't know they had on their phone, the woman would fade away in a natural sense, you know. Wow. And t tell us a lot about more about some of these other modern operations, so, or give us some more context. So you mentioned in the book that the Indian Army, for example, banned phones because the Pakistani ISI were, were using them to try to figure out what the Indians were up to. Sure. Um, that, was one, that was a very similar operation. They would download um, malware onto the phone um, and use you know, photos of um, good-looking women to, you know, to lure these guys in. They've used social media as, um, you know, intelligence services now use social media, not only uh, build a profile of their targets, but also conduct operations. Coming towards the end of the interview, what, what are, what's like one of the main, when you, when you meet people, go out for dinner or meet people in your everyday life and you tell them what you're doing, what's like the biggest misconception you think that people have about sex, betrayal and weaponized love, like the honey trap? Like what's the biggest misconception? They have a more romantic conception about it or they think that it's like spring break in Cancun, that it's not an intelligence operation, a planned and, you know, coordinated intelligence operation. And that's fine. The movie versions, you know, fictional, you know, and the myths, you know, they're entertainment. In reality, they're much different. So, and, and you know, one of the questions that some of our listeners will have will be, is this actually used by, like, the modern American intelligence agencies? Is this not in there with the, the church hate committee stuff where oh sure there was some naughty stuff that we've done in the past but we don't do it anymore I mean is this something that they'll actually still be doing or or do we just not know that or is it something we else? We don't know 
Um, we can ask them, see what they say. <laughs> I suspect I know what the answer will be. <laughs> okay. And like what you've studied this like from the dawn of time, really. So if someone's out there in the intelligence community who listens to Spycast and they're like, there's something about this doesn't seem right. Uh, how, how, what are some of Henry's top tips for spotting that you're uh, part of an intelligence operation uh, where people are using sex and love to take advantage of you? Like, how do you know this is happening to you? It'll seem perfectly natural. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How's that for an answer? Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. There's so much more that we could speak about. Um, well, I really enjoyed your book and I enjoyed our chat. So uh, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.